Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alina, who have we got with us today? Today we have Melanie Backhansen, who's a historian, a writer, a research consultant and a speaker specialising in the social history of houses across the United Kingdom. Melanie is a research consultant for A House Through Time and has co-written a book to go with the series, which is due out next month. Yay! She is also the author of House Histories, The Secrets Behind Your Front Door and Historic Secrets, uh, Historic Streets and Squares, The Secrets on Your Doorstep, which sounds absolutely epic. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. That was quite an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you doing with lockdown, Mel? Um, I'm doing okay. I'm trying not to go a little bit insane. Um, I I live in London, um, but I live in a small studio space. So it's, yeah, it's, I yeah, it, <laughs> I, I think I'm okay. And then I have bad days where I, I'm, I'm yeah, I think I start to lose it a little bit, but... <laughs> But getting, on the whole, I'm, I'm healthy and good, so it's okay. It's getting long now, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's it. It's just, yeah, the length of time. Yeah, I mean, I'm used to working from home quite a bit anyway, but yeah, just that, uh, you know, not being able to get out and see friends and yeah, the, the usual life things that have, that have stopped, you know, but it's mm. all good. Fingers crossed it's <laughs> nearly over, but uh, how did you get involved yeah. in house history? Well, um, it's a great question. Um, I I studied history at university, so so definitely did that. Had a long interest in history, um, but when I graduated, I actually studied in Australia to, to complicate matters. Um, but when I graduated, uh, I didn't want to go the academic route, um, so went off for a life in publishing for many years, um, and then after living in England for several years, I well. Basically, there was an opportunity, um, and when it was first advertised, it was very um, mysterious, but it was an estate agent who actually wanted uh, someone who could research history, obviously, um, but also had marketing and PR experience, which is what I'd been doing in publishing. Um, so I just had the sort of right combination of skills, and the next thing I knew, I was, you know, the first and only historian to be employed by an estate agent, and um, yeah, it, it all sort of kicked off from there. Um, so I've always had a love of history, but sort of combining that with the, the skills then meant I had this, this unique role um, 
and and my sole purpose with the company was to research the history of houses in order to promote them for for sale and let so yeah it was a great combination that's brilliant and so different as well um so what we're going to do with you today is we, you've got some of your favourites um, that you're going to talk to us about and people can really get an understanding of the kind of things you can find out just by looking at the history of a building. Um, so we've got a list of addresses to go through with you. Alina, what's our first one? So we're going to go to the Cotswolds and look at Holton House. Okay, yeah, Holton House. Um, this is definitely one of my favourites. Um, it's it's situated in a tiny Cotswold village um, and it's uh, it's one of those ones that you know it's it's obviously looks it's got the sort of Cotswold stone and it's got the the picturesque appearance but um, obviously it had a, a rural heritage um, but through delving through the records this extraordinary stories just evolved and, and came to light um, and I managed to through a whole of a lot of different researching. It was one of those ones where actually the it was formerly in Worcestershire, now it's in Gloucestershire, and then the archive materials spread all over the Midlands. So actually ended up in Birmingham and Gloucester and all sorts trying to find the deeds and, and trying to find records. Um, but I managed to find this elusive deed um, that uh, dated to 1694, which revealed the history of the house back to 1586, which is, you know, as a historian, it's like gold dust, you know, it was brilliant. I, I was one of those people in the archives just going, <gasps> you know, because it was just brilliant. Um, and it told the story um, of pretty much to when the house was first built um, and also who the occupants were. And it was a farming family of, um, with the name of Joyce mm-hmm. and, and they'd been in that area for many years. Um, But in 1588, the owners, who at the time were the bishops of Worcester, um, they uh, granted the the house and the property and the land around it to Queen Elizabeth I. Um, So, of course, then you get that, oh, (gasps) the Queen, you know. (laughs) So, of course, the the owners loved it. Um, But then uh, she didn't hang on to it for very long, and she passed it to her physician at the time, who was a man called Dr. Lopez. Um, And he, uh, well, he he kind of had quite a story of his own. And he um, had sort of came from Portugal and had connections to Spain and Portugal. And obviously being 1588, this is the time of the Spanish Armada and all sorts of, you know, court drama with the, the Spanish um, and Queen Elizabeth I. And so he himself got embroiled in sort of, um, all sorts of espionage. And, and even to this day, they're still uncertain about how much involvement he had, if any. Um, but he was later accused of trying to poison the Queen um, and taking um, you know, a large sum of money. He was arrested. He was put on the rack. He was, you know, it was literally like something out of a a Tudor soap opera um but it's uh it eventuated that he was found guilty um and he was executed um so meanwhile you've got this country house in the middle of the Cotswolds rural Cotswolds and it opens up this whole story about the queen and the Elizabethan court and espionage and treachery and treason and so he uh obviously lost the property and it's a very roundabout turn of events he um it actually went back to the bishops of Worcester, who then gave it back to the Queen. So a very complicated ownership um, story. Um, but it then evolved about 100 years later. Um, it's Well, 200 years later, sorry. Um, 
it uh, was owned by a man called John Wheatcroft. Um, and he was sort of a prominent gentleman farmer and, and from a, a local family who dominated a lot of the land ownership at that time. Um, but he then went to France and established himself as a um, very successful merchant. Um, and it turns out that he was in uh, Le Havre, um, port, the port town, in the 1780s, 1790s. And obviously this is the time of the French Revolution and the terror and there's all sorts going on. Um, but he continued to prosper and had quite a lucrative business going on. Um, but meanwhile, he seemed to just get really buddy with a lot of very famous names. Um, and he, I think he, was, he and his family were prominent in Le Havre. Um, and he also rented rooms. And it turns out he became very... Um, uh, very good friends with the future president of the United States, um, Thomas Jefferson. Um, and there's lots of letters and diary um, entries that talk about their friendship. And even after Thomas Jefferson and his family went back to the States, they continued to correspond and were very friendly. Um, so so the, again, this owner of a country house in the Cotswolds suddenly is friendly with the American president. Um, but then at the same time, um, this John Wheatcroft, he became friendly with Mary Wollstonecraft, um, who was also in Paris and then in France at the time. And she became pregnant with her first daughter, Fanny, um, and gave birth in La Havre. And John Wheatcroft and his wife were actually um, witnesses to the birth and were on the, the birth certificate. So this extraordinary turn of events, you know, it, it's, yeah, every time I, I discovered something, it was... Um, you know, gasping, jaw-dropping. Um, yeah, and that's just part of the story. So there was so much more to this house. Obviously, you've got hundreds of years of history, and that's just, you know... I bet the, the owners set. loved yeah. you. Oh, totally loved it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that, that was, you know, they just... They also loved the fact that um, Lopez, the the physician to Queen Elizabeth, he was apparently the inspiration for Shylock in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. So, of course, the... the the current owners, they just loved the fact that we had Queen Elizabeth I, then there was Shakespeare and Shylock, then there was Thomas Jefferson, and yeah, the whole thing, they just were in raptures, so yeah, it was oh, brilliant. That does, definitely does sound like a once-in-a-lifetime one. Let's look at a London address, yeah. so uh, you, there's one at Queen Anne's Gate, which I, I know of uh, because it had an anti-aircraft gun on top of it in World War One, didn't it? But you've specifically gone for number 21, Queen Anne's Gate. Yeah, I mean, Queen Anne's Gate is just such a brilliant street. I mean, if it's it's weird also because it's in such a central location. It's um, for those who don't know, it's right near St James's Park and and Westminster Abbey and Houses of Parliament. But it's sort of tucked away in a weird way. So unless you you know take take a detour to go down it, you you might not know it's there. Um, but it's well known now because it's it has a lot of um, Queen Anne. Uh, door canopies which a, a lot of which have have been replaced they're not original um but it does still look spectacular it's it's you know in terms of a queen anne and georgian street it looks brilliant and looks amazing it was very um, popular wasn't it with uh, people uh, high-ranking people who needed a crash pad in london if you like when they were on government business or court yeah. business yeah 100 percent. yeah so yeah because i ended up um doing a a spot of research on a number of the houses um and 
yeah, since it was built, which was uh, roughly the early 1700s, so um, the houses, the mixture, um, some of them are original to about 1704, but some of them are, have since been replaced and are later. Um, but it, yeah, for pretty much every house has had someone notable in it. So whether that's politicians or, you know, arist aristocracy or, you know, a lot of names, a lot of writers and engineers and architects. And yeah, it's, it's one of those streets that's just jam-packed full of of names um but number 21 had um gosh so many it's it's yeah again it's hundreds of years worth of history in one house but um it had uh, early on it was it was occupied by a man called hopton haynes um and he was a writer but he also became essay master at the royal mint um at which time uh, sir isaac newton was warden of the Royal Mint, um, and they became very friendly. Um, so it's quite a nice little link to an, another name. But it was quite cool because it, even Hopton Haynes um, actually named one of his children after Isaac Newton. So there's all these connections and links. Um, and they also had a, a strong theological connection. So they were often talking about theology and, and you know, a number of books that they wrote. Um, but then much later, um, it's, the, the best bit, actually, most people get really, really excited about is that it was home of the chief of MI6. Um, so instantly people were thinking, oh, my gosh, spies and espionage and all sorts is going on. And actually, you could argue that it was going on. Um, so it it was backed on to um, another property, um, which was the sort of main offices for MI6 um, during the, the mid-20th century. Um, and there was said to be the secret tunnel between the two two houses uh, or two properties and it's there was definitely a walkway and actually there's there's a number of personal sort of um, stories of people going in one side and following a tunnel and different doors and uh, you know for walking all the way through to the actual house on Queen Anne's Gate which is where they had the head man was and had his had his apartments um, but it was just this brilliant connection and it was from the 1920s um, the house was sort of rejigged and became the head um, the home of the head of the MI6 um, but it was just such an extraordinary time because it was about 1925-26 um, so you've got that post first world war interwar period leading up to the second world war and obviously there was just so much going on and you the lead up to um you've got the problems in russia then you've got the pro problems in obviously nazi germany and and italy and all sorts going on meanwhile this you know lovely queen anne house in queen anne's gate um was you know had all sorts of you know events and people going in and out the back doors <laughs> you know um and it continued to be the home of the mi6 um till the 1960s so it's through that that whole period of the Second World War, post-war, Cold War, you know, there's just so much going on. And uh -huh. actually, this, it's, it's one of those things where actually, you, yeah, you could write several books on that alone. Like, it was just, you know, with all the, the espionage and spies, and then you've got the, the chasing after Cambridge spies, and then, you know, there's just, there's just so much to it. I'm getting a sense that um, you start your research on a building and you have no idea when it's going to take you. That must be really exciting. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's actually one of the most tricky things is that you it, quite often I literally just get an address um, and you've no idea what you'll find. Like it, it, yeah, it could 
go anywhere, whether the house is 16th century or, or 1930s into a house, you just never know who you'll find and what you'll find. So it's, it's all part of the fun, actually. It's why I like it so much. So let's head away from London. Let's go up a little bit north, up to Nottinghamshire. And we, if you could tell us a little bit more about Burgage House. Yeah, Burgage House is such a fun one because it's, um, uh, it's uh, basically built uh, very late 1700s, turn of the, turn of the 19th century, um, large gentleman's residence, um, very, you know, picturesque Georgian house. Um, and it was from the very early period, from basically from about 1790s, it was home to the Leecroft family. Um, but it is at this time, at the turn of the 19th century, that across the, the green, shall we say, um, was the home of Byron's mother. And Byron would often visit while he was on school holidays or, and then later when he was at Cambridge. So he, he sort of had this ongoing connection with, with Southwell, which was where the house is. Um, and he would visit and he became really friendly with a number of the other sort of um, children of his age because at this point he was late teen. Um, yeah, he was, he was quite young still at this point, mm. obviously being at university um, and school. And so he, he became really friend, good friends with the Piggott family, who also lived a few doors down, and then the Leecroft family, who were at Burgett House. Um, and in particular, John and Julia, brother and sister, um, Leecroft. Um, and it was in about 1806 that this group of friends, they were all hanging out during the summer, as you do, as any teens would do even now. Um, and they got bored and they thought, what? what could we do and they thought well we'll put on some amateur dramatics <laughs> as you do it always reminds me of um, Mansfield Park and you know the the play that they put on in yeah. Jane Austen's Mansfield Park um and uh, actually as like with Mansfield Park there you know all sorts started to unravel um and it turns out that Byron was playing the lead roles and then Julia Leecroft was was opposite him in the female lead roles um and you know certain amount of flirting took place and you know they became very chummy and friendly um and so much so that they they became the talk of the town and everyone was talking about Byron and Julia Leecroft and Julia's family pretty much assumed that this was this was going to lead to marriage of course um but Byron had absolutely no intention whatsoever of marrying Julia Leecroft um he, he was just having a good time yeah um so all sorts is going on um and it it's so much so that actually it, it sort of by the winter and turn into 1807 uh byron had to actually make a bit of a hasty retreat um because he he was sort of it was assumed that he would marry julia and then also there were stories about julia's family trying to entrap byron so that he would marry julia um and then uh julia's brother john is supposedly um there's letters between him and byron um alluding to a duel and there's all sorts of stories that actually john um threatened byron with a duel and it's, it's, it all unraveled this sort of friendly amateur dramatics and the next thing you know Byron's running from the town um but he did he actually wrote two poems about Julia so there's actually um some of his early poems were about her so it just yeah it all unraveled and I just love the fact that it was this very picturesque Georgian house but then this this whole drama just un, un, unraveled in the middle of this house and then the story with Byron and he pretty much you know he 
didn't go back. He he never went back there, and you know that was that was the end of Julia Leecroft, sadly. Drama just seems to follow him everywhere, doesn't it? I know. Yeah, it almost <laughs> seems just required for his. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I love the sound of the next property, which is in Norfolk. Um, it's Balaclava Cottage. Yeah, Balaclava. Yeah, this is a really good one because it's a tiny cottage. Like it's literally a two up, two down in a very small rural um, village in in Norfolk, um, and it's believed to be built mid 19th century and it's early history is it's actually quite tricky to trace because it was largely home to laborers you know um agricultural workers um and it's yeah it sort of comes in and out of the record so it was a bit tricky to trace um but it was yeah it was home to uh, blacksmiths and and you know I want to say typical working people, that sounds very derogatory, but it was, you know, it was a small village and it was largely mm. rural population. Um, and it was a couple of doors down from the pub, so you could kind of gauge some of the, Even better. See the records. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it was actually, uh, some people might get the name, but it's in the early 20th century, um, I managed to discover it. it it had actually been rumoured there was a connection, but no one had looked at the records to, to establish the truth. But in about 1909, um, early 1900s, the house was owned by a man called James Ollie. Um, and it turns out he was one of the very few sort of um, survivors of the famous Charge of the Light Brigade, which took place in the Battle of Balaclava, which is obviously where the, the name of the house eventuated, um, which was part of the Crimean War in the 1850s. Um, and it's, it. I think part of the reason why it, his story comes to light is because he actually wrote about his experiences um, mm. and also that he was sort of rank and file soldier as opposed to one of the um, one of the officers or you know it, and we often hear these stories from the officers and the people in charge but he was a you know ordinary cavalry cavalryman and he was in the charge um and he told these extraordinary stories of his injuries and he got shot and stabbed and he got shot in the eye and then he oh you know it was this extraordinary story of his survival like he actually got seriously injured but he had managed to survive um and then he tells a story where he, he was actually in the hospital, which was um, managed by Florence Nightingale. So there's the whole connection to, to the early nursing in Florence Nightingale. And then when he came back to the UK, um, he was visited by Queen Victoria um, and Albert. So this whole story of, of his experience. Um, but it was, it, that alone is, is quite something. And then you could delve into that so much more um but many years later he was like a lot of soldiers of of that time and even now you could say where he was sort of um, he couldn't fight anymore um and he sort of uh basically fell on hard times um and was yeah. resorted to begging and all sorts um and he was saved by a local um squire um, and he gave him work working with the horses on his country estate, which of course was very apt, having been a former cavalryman. Um, and then he, so his his situation turned around, and that's why in the early 1900s he owned um, a few properties. Um, but of course, they were small rural properties, nothing enormous. Um, but it was just such a fantastic story because it's, I like the fact that it's just a small little cottage and a lot of people think, oh, you have to have a big stately home to have any history in a house. Yeah. But actually this is a small little 
you know, house in the middle of a rural village. And this extraordinary story of a, a man who survived one of the most famous battles of the 19th century. So it's just, yeah, it's, it's a great example of actually a, any house can have a story. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I like that one. Talking I like about- that it's a little small one but we're going to go much bigger and grander yeah. now aren't we Alina exactly I was about to jump in there and say we're talking about some beautiful big houses if we if I, if I say the word bath everyone <laughs> knows where we're going to go with this one so the circus number 11 tell us about it yeah number yeah it's I mean I, I'm a massive fan of Bath. it's one of my favorite places um but it's yeah I research a few houses um, in Bath and the circus is obviously one of the most famous spots, one of the most, apart from the Royal Crescent, you know, it's one of the most visited parts of the, t- of the city. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, built um, mid 1700s. Obviously, a lot of people will know that the design was by John Ward the Elder, um, who had such a, a massive impact on Bath and, it, and it's now sort of architectural history. Um, but before building could take uh could start effectively john Ward the elder died so it the circus was actually constructed and overseen by his son john Ward the younger um who also then went on to do the royal crescent um but number 11 was in the sort of northern um part of the crescent uh, sorry the circus um which was the last of the sort of three three sections um to be built um so it was about uh this 1760s if i think i've got that right um because it took part it started building in the 1750s and then obviously took several years for each of the different parts to be built um but the uh, first resident to move in yes 1750s 1754 the first resident was william pitt the elder um, another elder um but who was a former prime minister um and he obviously had you know massive role in the history of the country but it was a, it was about this time he was moving to bath because he was retiring away from um london and parliament uh because he was ill and he was coming to bath to take the waters as you do um and this was this was the home that he moved into so number 11 the circus um and he was there for several years. Um, but then, of course, from then, you know, the history of Bath is so many people coming and going for different periods of time as they came and visited. It was, you know, um, so there were lots of sort of aristocratic families and lots of 
lots of uh, famous names and lots of you, if you look at the history it's basically you know earls dukes lords you know it's constant yeah um but then later obviously it's uh you know you get lots of doctors um that's a, another thing so by the 1790s uh, the house had become the home of a Dr. Mapleton, um, and the rate books have him living there for several years. Um, and then it was later in the early 1800s that he um, was basically very good friends with Mrs. Austen and her daughters, Jane and Cassandra. Ah. <laughs> so you can't have a bathhouse without a link to Jane Austen. Um, so early 1800s, um, he was still, Dr. Mapleton was still at number 11, the circus. And we have from letters and, and other records that Jane and her, her mother and sister visited Dr. Mapleton at uh, number 11 several times. Um, so, which is a really nice link. Obviously, as I say, you know, it feels like you can't have a bathhouse without a mention of Jane Lawson. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, we know she definitely was there, so which is really great. So she, she visited several times. Um, but then uh, later in the 19th century, the house was transformed quite dramatically and was used by Somersetshire College. So again, like a lot of large Georgian houses, they were repurposed and, and often you know, reused into different things, became lodging houses and all sorts. Um, but it was the early 1850s, number 11, it was basically used as schoolrooms for this college. Um, and it remained uh, used by the college for many years. Um, but by the 1860s, um, I discovered um, several references to Alexander Graham Bell, who was a tutor at Somersetshire College. Um, and actually, he's uh, recorded as, as sort of undertaking several tests in te telephony. I can never say that correctly. Um, <laughs> and before he actually sort of definitely invented the telephone. Um, so meanwhile, you then have, you've got Jane Austen, you've got the you know, early prime minister, but then you have Alexander Graham Bell shortly before he invents the telephone. And so it's, yeah, quite, that was a really fun one. Because again, because, because when it, uh, houses become institutions it, it can be very easy to sort of dis disregard them and, and dismiss them and say oh well no there's nothing interesting to be found because it was just a school or it was just this um but yeah little did i know that a tutor <laughs> one of the tutors was one of the most well-known inventors in history um so that was brilliant so i love it yeah. um let's do a couple more let's go let's try kent so nash house in tunbridge wells uh, yeah, this is one of the ones actually because it's oh gosh, it was built um, about 1690s, um, and again, it's got hundreds of years of history. Um, but because it was connected to again another uh, another watering place, um, it's uh, it had many many people coming and going through its early early history, well actually through most of its history. Um, but also one of the key things was its name changed so many times literally uh it had a different uh name or number um through each generation so it was it actually had about seven different names and numbers um so tracing it can, was was quite a challenge to make sure you had the right house and then it also was divided so originally it was um uh one whole detached house and then it became two separate semi-detached houses so then you have to divide you know trying to work out which house was which and who was at which and then the numbers changed so that was quite fun um but it 
along with a, a lot of houses, it was obviously built to, um, at the time of Tunbridge Wells exploding as a popular watering place and people coming to take the waters. Um, so actually a lot of its history was as a lodging house with people coming, visiting for a certain period of time through the season to take the waters. Um, and then later it was thought uh, the current owners were sort of assured that it had a link with um, Bo Nash, who was the master of ceremonies and obviously had a link with Bath as well. Mm. Um, very famous man. Um, and they were told, yes, it's, it has definitely, it has a link with Bo Nash. Yes, of course it does. Um, but in the research, um, I, I sort of, it's, it, you could, you could sort of say that perhaps he visited. Um, I didn't find any evidence of it. Um, and then it's, it's discovered that actually it was only named Nash House after the Second World War. So you're talking, you know, 200 years after, <laughs> after um, or, or if I've got my dates right, but many, many years later after Bo Nash was even there. Um, and it's, which happens quite a lot, especially during the mid 20th century, you get a, a lot of sort of romantic na house names and things. Um, but it's, um, yeah, it had some really fun links with um, particularly women and actually the the current owner who's a writer she actually loved the fact that it had a lot of connections with with women and a lot of the owners were either widowed women or independent women um and they they um lived in the house for many years and and not only raised families but actually sort of established um themselves um in tunbridge wells which i thought was really fun and then in the 20th century it was used by the women's voluntary uh, group and during the first world war they held training for women specifically to help with the war effort and that involved everything from um you know medical assistance to uh actually if if for any reason britain was uh, or england was invaded that they'd be ready with their their skills to sort of defend the nation um so there was all that sort of thing going on and it was it actually later in the first world war um it was taken to be used for military purposes um and the how it, it it became very difficult to establish exactly in what way it was used um and all the references just just say that it was used for military purposes so it's a bit curious but it does appear that it was probably just used as a base um, because of the location in Kent it was used um, as a base for a military office shall we say but um, yeah it had all sorts of stories and a lot of a lot of famous names in Tunbridge Wells as well so um, 18th and 19th centuries a lot of the owners were people who had a real who made a real mark on Tunbridge Wells during those times um, including one who later established a um, department store in Tunbridge Wells and from like for years it was the department store in the middle of Tunbridge Wells and it was the house was occupied by the owners so yeah lots of it's it's one of those ones where actually there are just so many people it's actually quite difficult to to, to talk about them all because you know yeah, hundreds yeah. Of years of different people coming and going but um but yeah really really fascinating and and it's and it's position within the center of tunbridge wells from when it was a famous spa town to to what it is now so do you know you can always imagine when it says for military use you know my imagination goes absolutely wild yeah. what it could have really been used for yeah i know it's the same with a, a lot of records where it doesn't say specifically so you're trying ever so hard to read between the lines and think well what was it what 
okay, what does that really mean? What was actually going on? So, yeah. Exactly. Right. So let's move on to Devonshire and uh, the Chantry, if I've pronounced that correctly. Yeah, yeah. Chantry is brilliant. It's such an amazing house. Um, it uh, is actually the oldest house I've ever researched. Um, it was built in the 1490s. Um, but what I love is actually it's still got a lot of original Tudor features that um, are still, and actually the house today is grade one listed. So in, in terms of sort of residential house, that's very unusual. Most residential houses are a grade two or grade two star, if anything. Um, so the fact that it's grade one listed is amazing because it has these original Tudor features. Um, but it was built as a chantry house by the, the, the then laws of the manor, um, which was effectively a house for a priest to pray for the souls of their benefactors and their sponsors. So at a time when obviously the country was, was um, Catholic and actually had very different religious practices, but also the fact that the country was uh, dominated by religion in its different, both sort of municipal and religious practices um so 1490s they established this chantry house and then they're assured of their place in heaven because they've got a priest praying for them um but then obviously 16th century comes along you get the dissolution of the monasteries and then after that the dissolution of the chantries specifically um and so the house loses its purpose um, and it becomes a gentleman's residence, um, and it was owned by the Marwood family, who were lords of the manor for hundreds of years. Um, but they also became quite prominent because they ended up as being um, royal phys physicians as well, um, royal doctors. So the eldest, um, Thomas Marwood, he was a physician to Queen Elizabeth I, um, and then his grandson ended up another Thomas Marwood, same name, um, ended up being physician to James I and Charles I. So they obviously had their royal links and, you know, the aristocratic um, owners uh, had all their famous connections. But meanwhile, the house itself was a gentleman's residence. And actually then, uh, as the years passed, it became just a farmhouse, which I always find quite fascinating um, because only because it became a farmhouse that no one did it up you know like and it's a, quite often the case with um smaller cottages or older houses that that they become occupied by sort of those down the social classes but it means that the house isn't done up you don't actually lose the historic features because they can't afford to do it up so those period features and historic features they they remain um and it would continue to be a farmhouse for hundreds of years um until the 20th century. Um, and so it's it survived with all its um, original features. Um, and it was added on. Actually, one of the fun things was it was extended in the 1930s, which I find funny because it's literally hundreds of years later, you know, they add a, an extension for a bathroom because prior to that time, you just had a, a privy out the back. Um, yeah. And actually, one of the original tu uh, Tudor features was an original wardrobe. So actually, when it was first used in the 15th century it did have its luxurious toilet with a garderobe <laughs> um, but much later as a farmhouse it would have just had you know uh, a privy out the back um, but the 1930s bathroom was added uh, and when I went to visit um, just a few years ago now but the 1930s bathroom also hadn't been touched so you had this extraordinary combination of a Tudor 
house which had an oak spiral staircase and an original um ceiling timbered ceilings and uh timber bosses and and then next door you've got this 1930s original uh bathroom which was actually extraordinary so i liked both parts but obviously you got you know hundreds of years between them um and yeah, even now it's it's still occupied by um, a family, and they actually rent out rooms. I've I've since learned recently, but um, yeah, it's a brilliant house because it's just it's well, it's one of the oldest, particularly for a residential house. That's brilliant. Um, so people are locked down at home. Is there anything they can do if they want to find out if there's any amazing stories um, behind their own house? What can they do to get started? Is there something they can do on lockdown? Um, yeah, there's probably several things. I mean, there's there's increasingly a lot online. Um, and even if it is actually just gaining an understanding of the local area, because actually when you, when you start researching the history of a house, you have to look beyond the boundaries of just that house. You have to look at, it, at the house in a context of its local area. Um, so one of the easiest things would be to actually just look into the history of the area and actually gain a bit of an understanding of is it an older village that perhaps was was you know rural agricultural village and has slowly just developed or was it a new town that was built in the 19th or 20th century or was it did it grow because of the railways or did it have connections to mining or or was it a fishing village or like you can actually gain a lot of understanding about the house and its place in history Mm. by looking at the local area and the local history um there are um uh, a lot of records increasingly becoming available online, um, largely through subscription sites. So you can start delving a bit further into specifics about people and, and their individual stories. Um, so that's through on- online sites like Ancestry or Find My Past or The Genealogist. There's a few different ones. Um, but they more often than not, they'll, they'll require a a payment of subscription um, but the other thing with house histories is you you have to actually work backwards in time um, and this always sort of stumps a few people so you might know that you have a Georgian house uh, and it's I know maybe roughly mid 18th century and you immediately want to jump back into the 1750s and find out who who built it and who owned it um, and you might know that perhaps it was part of the manor or something like that but on the whole you actually can't find out the specifics until you work backwards in time from more recent history. Um, And that's largely because a lot of records for houses, they don't identify the house very clearly. So quite often the house name changes, as I mentioned with Nash House in Tunbridge Wells. Um, So actually you could find out that the house had a completely different name 100 years ago or 200 years ago. so that's one of the tricky things. So you, you need to sort of uh, be a bit, not too methodical, but you have to sort of take it step by step and try to piece it together. Um, but yeah, while we're on lockdown, I would suggest that, you know, there's a lot you can do by just doing a bit, a few searches online and, and finding out a bit more about the, the local area. And then you could perhaps piece together, you might find references to when your street was built or, or you know, reasons why it might have been developed in the first place. And your book's out um, next month, isn't it? Uh, yes, yes. I have now had confirmation of that. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was um, yeah, it, it's been on the cards for a bit. But obviously, with uh, it's timed for to accompany the programme, um, and that's moved around the schedules. Um, but also because of 
the whole coronavirus there was there was some moving around of the schedules so we weren't entirely sure but yes so it's set for the 14th of may to to be released um so that's exciting <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us my pleasure my pleasure great to chat awesome can't wait to get our hands on a copy of a uh, copy of the book thank cool. you <laughs> Join us this evening for Down the Pub, where we just had a riotous um, piss-up last night, basically, discussing history's most hilarious moments, and uh, learn probably nothing of any intrinsic historical value, but we had fun, and we hope you do, listening to it as well. There's a big crowd in for that. Then this weekend, it is time for our US History Festival, if you like. We've got two days celebrating American history. On Saturday, you can hear tales of Abraham Lincoln, the Texas Navy, and the American Revolution. And on Sunday, we have CIA history, World War II, and the NYPD women, the first women, the fight to control illegal abortion. Uh, that is really interesting and still has some resonance today as well, which I found utterly baffling. So join us for all of that. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed, the regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 